If you're able, would you please stand with me as we read? So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger at Job's three friends because they found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, Let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, Listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings, while you searched out what to say, I gave you attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. I also will share my opinion. I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Behold now, hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue that is in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they must speak sincerely. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed, and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread, and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit, and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I find I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth, and let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. That man prays to God, and he accepts him, and he sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to a man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I have sinned and perverted what is right, and it was not repaid me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man, to bring him back from the, from the, his soul back from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. Do you think this to be just? Do you say, it is my right before God, that you ask, what advantage have I? 
How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see. Behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you had sinned, what do you accomplish against him? If your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. The word of the Lord. We have two sermons left in our series in the book of Job. Today we have a new conversation partner, a new character in the story. His name is Elihu. And next week, uh, as we close the series, the whirlwind will show up. And God will speak to Job face to face. We spent a lot of time in the book of Job. The invitation has been to swim in the deep end, to ask deeper questions than we like to do on a normal daily basis as we go about our day. And Job invites us to pause and to reflect. But it's easy to lose or to miss the forest for the trees. And so today, in order to not do that, as we bring the series to a close, I want us to do a couple of things. One, to summarize our story a bit, but two, to try to understand why this character Elihu is present, and what does he have to say, and is he on Job's side or is he not? And then lastly, is to set us up next week for the whirlwind with God. But to guide the sermon today, I want us to have one question in mind, a guiding question. After all that we've talked about, all that we've gone through, all of the ideas, all of the theologies that have been expressed. What is truly at stake in the Job story? What's really on the line for Job? So to summarize, as we review just briefly, what do we know about the book so far? And what do we know to be true about Job? Well, we know three things. We know that Job's suffering was God's idea, that he was the one who brought it up to Satan, the accuser. And we know that uh, Job's suffering is not because he's done something wrong. There's nowhere in the book that says that Job is suffering because of what he's done. He's actually suffering because of what he hasn't done. He's suffering because he is righteous. It's not because of sin. And thirdly, we know that Job, out of all of the people in the book, Job is the only one who talks to God. Out of the four people that he talks to, the four men that come and offer their wisdom, Job is the only one that talks to God, like Ryan said earlier. And as the tragedy befalls Job, the first three friends that show up, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, spend all of this time trying to get Job to actually admit that he's sinned. Job, you're actually suffering all of this because you've done something. Job says, no, I haven't. No, I have not. And Job maintains his innocence. He says that this wisdom that has been handed down through the generations, that God just blesses who he blesses and curses, or blesses who deserve it and curses who deserve it. 
He just acts based, he just gives gifts and curse, curse, curses according to what we do. And Job says, yeah, but that doesn't work anymore because my situation is different. And he maintains his innocence and he says, I don't actually deserve what has befallen me. And so Job maintains his desire throughout this whole book that he wants to put God on trial. He wants God to take the witness stand and give him the answers to bring uh, certainty and understanding to all of his confusion, all of his vexation, all of his anger about what has happened to him. He wants God to show up, and he cries out over and over and over again. And we get through 26 chapters of debate with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they couldn't convince Job. Job maintains his innocence. And then we get to chapter 32, and we get to Elihu. Elihu, the young uh, firebrand, uh, the young passionate guy who just enrolled uh, for seminary, and uh, he's ready to go. And he jumps in to the conversation, and he does so very abruptly. And honestly, Eliphaz, or Eliphaz, Elihu is probably one of the strangest characters uh, that I've read about in any commentary. He's a very mysterious figure, and particularly because uh, most commentators, when they comment on Elihu, are actually quite split. There's the question of, is Elihu actually for, uh, does he actually speak for God? Is he this prophetic voice? And some would say, yes, absolutely he is. He finally tells Job how it really is. And then on the other hand, there's commentators that say, no, Elihu doesn't actually speak for God. And they lump him in with the same foolishness of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar that went before him. But there's also this aspect of uh, Elihu where he says, my words are many. And yes, they are. Five straight chapters he speaks. He speaks more than anybody in the entire book other than Job. He even speaks more than God. But the funny thing is, is that no one actually responds to Elihu. Why is that? No one even utters a word to Elihu. No one even utters his name. So why is he there? And one thing to point out as we begin to jump into what he says is that Elihu argues from a different perspective than Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar before him. They would argue that we actually hold the wisdom of our fathers has been handed down to us, that we know this to be true. But Elihu will argue from a different perspective. He will argue from a spiritual authority, that he has divine insight. And he makes that very clear to Job and to the three friends. And I'll say right up front that I do not believe whatsoever that Elihu speaks for God, and he's no friend of Job. One, the obvious question is, if Job speaks for earth, Elihu speaks for God, then why does God speak? Secondly, uh, I think that Elihu is different in the fact that he's different from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar and that he's far more foolish. He's an even bigger fool. So he bursts onto the scene in chapter 32. So he comes on, and he's very angry. Why is he angry? Well, he says that, so these, so in verse 1 of 32, so these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. So Elihu is angry 
One, at Job, because Job maintains his innocence, and that's not how Elihu sees the situation. Secondly, he's angry with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, because even though they declared Job to be wrong, they failed to persuade him. They failed to out-argue Job. So, if I ask the question this morning that's guiding the sermon is, what's really at stake in this story? For Elihu, it's very clear that it's theological precision. It's winning the argument. And he's angry at Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar because they haven't. And thank God that he's here so that he can bring understanding. He's just the type of person that you want on speed dial to call when you lose everything. Somebody that wants to make sure that you've got all your theological ducks in a row. And that you don't say any heresy or anything wrong. And we'll see for Elihu that uh, his basic perspective is that if he had the right doctrine of God, the right understanding and a better understanding of God, then none of this would have happened. None of this would have happened. And if he actually just embraces the theology of Elihu, then all of this will be okay. And so he says, Job, all of this would be okay if you had the right doctrine, and I, Elihu, will give it to you. So what does he say? Well, the first thing is, is we step into... uh, his main arguments is that I was, uh, came across a Tim Keller interview this week. And somebody asked him, what idols do you see present culturally in the church? And one of the things he said was doctrine. That doctrine can be an idol in the church. That what will bring God most satisfaction and most pleasure is if we nail down every piece of doctrine perfectly. That theological precision is what God desires most for us as his people. And you can hear this throughout Elihu's speeches. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying whatsoever that doctrine is not good. Of course it is. But what he's bringing up is that there's a danger whenever we make doctrine the destination. Rather than seeing truth and doctrine as the light that illumines our path to God. So that we might have an uh, intimate, personal, and deep relationship with him. Knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. And it's easy to mistake that. And it's easy that if we make doctrine the destination, then kind of the, the, the point, then we often have a smugness. It creates an arrogance. The Apostle Paul says this very clearly in 2 Corinthians 12. He says that because of the exceeding revelation that God has given me, so that I don't become conceited, God gives me a thorn in the flesh. And he's not going to take it away so that I will continue to be dependent upon him and not just the truth that he gives me. So that it won't just be me that I'm parroting. In short, the human heart has a tremendous way of taking truth and using it for our own benefit and speaking for God rather than seeking God. And when this happens, I think two things occur. One, well, three things. One, there's no longer a need to seek God personally because we feel as though we have the answers. And what that does is it creates a profound sense of self-importance. And also it creates this, it's built on this assumption that when we engage with others, we engage in a way that has an arrogance that we know all the angles. And if we see all the angles, then we have all the answers. And you see this with Elihu. You see his uh, sense of self-importance in Chapter 36 in the first four verses. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little and I will show you. For I have yet something to say on God's behalf. 
I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. That's going to be the intro to every sermon from here on out. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Does that sound like a man to listen to? You see, you have um, the people that would support Elihu would say, he's this prophetic voice because he does speak truth. Yeah, he does. But it's his character that's the problem. It's his arrogance that he doesn't have this prophetic voice whatsoever because he doesn't come to Job with this posture that God has spoken to me and thus saith the Lord. I will speak on his authority. He says, I will speak on my own. I will speak on God's behalf and I will speak in his place. So in short, what Elihu is communicating to Job is that if God were here, this is what he would say. If God were here, this is what he would say, so you should listen to me. And because of this, Elihu believes that he sees all of the angles. And he basically gives, um, we're going to cover three, two, two points, basically. The first is that he offers his perspective to Job. One of the first things he says to Job is his, Elihu's view of suffering. And he offers it in chapter 33, through uh, verses 12 through 30. And just to read a couple of verses... He says, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not sick that his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near to the pit, and his life to those who bring death. If there be an angel for him, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to him what is right for him, he is merciful and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. And lastly, in verse 27, he says, And this man will sing before men and say, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and my life shall look upon it, the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. Now, it's poetry, and it's a little bit difficult to understand, as, as usual. But basically, Elihu is simply saying that or suffering at its core is disciplinary. Job, the reason suffering happens is because God is being gracious and drawing you back from the pit. You've done something as you go towards the path of destruction, and God allows suffering to wake you up and to bring you back and to correct your course. Okay. I'll give you that. Now, I agree that that's... An aspect of suffering is that it's disciplinary. But he'll go on and then apply his view of suffering to Job. So what does he say? He says in chapter 36, verses 5 through 12, he skips around quite a bit, so sorry that I have to as well. But he says in verse 5 of chapter 36, Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne he sets them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving ignorantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity, and if they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge." So he's basically saying that God would not in any way whatsoever turn his face on the righteous. He would not allow calamity to fall on those who are righteous. Suffering is disciplinary, but it only happens to those who deserve it. Suffering doesn't happen to those who don't. 
My friends, what is the difference in what he's saying than all that has gone before with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? They don't understand Job's situation because Job is not suffering because of something that he did. And Elihu doesn't present anything new to Job, and he doesn't know Job, and he doesn't know his situation, and neither does Job or Elihu know God. And he shows it in how he corrects Job in chapters 34 and 35, and I'm just going to summarize both sections. But he basically says uh, the same thing, but in two different ways. Chapter 34, he goes on this kind of long tirade where he said, Job, there's nothing that you can say to make God bend an ear to you. So stop trying. God has acted in your story. God has brought justice. Therefore, there's nothing left for God is not going to come to you and hold counsel with you. He has no need to consider you further. It's you who need to consider what he's doing. But the problem is is that God shows up. Job cries out over and over and over, and God shows up to speak with Job. Maybe God is pleased with something that Job says. Then in chapter 35, in the first eight verses, he tells Job, he says that it doesn't matter what you do. So before he says it doesn't matter what you say, and now he says it doesn't matter what you do. Whether it's right or wrong, God isn't affected by that whatsoever. The only person that it affects is you. So it doesn't matter what you do, God is not going to hold counsel with you which is the same thing that has gone before, is that the only reason you actually serve God is because you get blessed. Why he's saying, you're the only one that's affected, Job, so you better do what is good and what is right so that you'll be blessed. But that is not the story. Elihu doesn't know God whatsoever because God still comes to Job. And he still comes to Job in a powerful way perhaps because he does actually delight in something that Job has done. You see, what Elihu is basically saying, just to boil him down, is that he has this view of God, that God is simply just this transcendent being that sits far in the heavens and is far removed from his individual creation. And the only reason he actually acts in the world is just to show that he's superior than everything else and to exercise judgment on those who deserve it and to bless those who deserve it. And he thinks that God is just this transcendent being that is far removed from the world. And you see Elihu, he just offers these simple, generic, doctrinal answers to Job. He offers these simple answers, these little kernels of truth. If you step back, is there anything that we can say to get God to show up at our doorstep? No, there's not. Sure, that's true. At the same time, is there anything that we can do to take away from God's deity? Of course not. God is God. But yet Job still cries out, and God still shows up. There must be something more. Maybe God is invested in Job's story far more than Elihu could ever imagine. But the danger of listening to Elihu is that he gives Job just enough truth to mislead him. He gives Job just enough truth to lead him away from God because the reality is is that truth misapplied is still wrong. And Elihu has a few pithy ideas, a few ideas of who God is and a few doctrinal truths that he applies to Job and yet he's completely wrong. And so imagine if Job actually did follow Elihu's advice. Imagine if Elihu said, Job, you're suffering because God is disciplining you. So Elihu, or Job says, okay, 
I guess I need to try harder to please God. I must have done something wrong. I'll try harder to please him. Or you have uh, Elihu says that Job, stop trying to hear from God. Stop trying to speak to God because he's far above and he will not descend to speak with you. Imagine if Job would have said, okay, you're right. God is transcendent. Who am I to ask audience with him? God doesn't want to speak with me. I will be about the business of trying to please him. And I think sometimes we do the same thing, is that we often take a few general theological doctrinal answers, and we use those to reason and interpret our own story rather than going to God. That our heart has a way of, we take a little bit of the truth and knowledge that we have, and we actually think that we understand the story that God has written for us. Well, God is sovereign. Who am I to question him? God is sovereign. He's got far bigger concerns than my problems. God doesn't like complainers. We should obey him and not say anything about it, even if it's difficult or it's hard. Sometimes we use theology to block ourselves from actually seeking God, which is what Elihu does. Simple answers for complex problems. And the reality is is that uh, Job isn't persuaded by Elihu's simple answers. Because he knows there's something in his story that only God can answer. So he bundles up all of his pain and all of his vexation, and he wants to bring it to God, and he waits. He waits for the whirlwind to come. And when it does come, and God shows up, Job will realize that God is not simply this transcendent, divine God. You have to realize, Elihu isn't saying anything remotely Christian whatsoever just because he describes God as transcendent. Every religion on earth describes their deities as transcendent and high above. What makes this story different in Job, a Christian story, is that God is near to those who suffer. God is not so high above that he's distant and cold, but that he actually is deeply invested in the suffering of this world. And he's deeply invested in the suffering of Job. And when God shows up, he wants to give Job something far more precious in that suffering than just simple answers as to why his suffering occurred. So what does God want to give Job as we look forward to next week? What does God want to give you? You have to remember our question this morning. What is it that is really at stake in this story with Job? What's on the line? Well, remember back to Job 1, the wager, the bet between God and Satan. Satan comes into the throne room and says, God says, where have you been? Satan says, wandering the earth. Satan, the accuser. And God brings up Job to Satan. He says, have you considered my servant Job, who's righteous and upright and blameless and has kept himself pure and away from sin? God brings up Job, and Satan says, well, the only reason he's actually following you is because you blessed him. You take all of that away, he'll curse you to your face. He'll curse you. And God says, challenge accepted. Let's see who wins. Which means that the real question of Job is often treated as, why do the righteous suffer? But that's the wrong question. Because what's really at stake, the real question is when the righteous suffer and they lose everything and they suffer the loss of all things, is God still worth pursuing? Whenever everything is taken away from you, all the blessings of serving God and God is the only thing you have left, is he enough? God puts himself on trial in the story of Job. 
It was his idea to say and put Job in a situation that, yes, it brought suffering, but this is exactly how God will vindicate himself as being precious, as being more precious than anything that Job lost because his value and his worth is beyond compare. But the question is, how does he do it? How does God show that to him? How does God show to Job that he is far more precious than anything he's lost? I think we must turn to the great film City Slickers to understand. There's, did I hear an amen? I, I thought, okay, maybe not. <laughs> There's a scene in this film where they're on this cattle ranch. They've gone on a stampede, or a, uh, 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 they're taking these cows, this, um, what's, I'm drawing a blank. Cattle drive, cattle drive. They're on a cattle drive, Billy Crystal and his two friends, Phil and Ed. And Phil is there, or uh, Mitch says as they're riding their horses alongside each other, got nothing but time and days ahead. Mitch says, what's your best day? What's the best day you've ever had? And so Phil goes first and kind of says a funny first day or best day that he had. And then Mitch says what his best day was. And then they look to Ed and they say, Ed, what was your best day? And he says, nah, I don't want to play. I say, why not? Why don't you play? Come on, Ed, don't be like that. We share, why don't you share? What's your best day? Just a simple question. And he said, I grew up in an alcoholic home. My dad beat up on my mom my entire life. And there's one night when I was 16 that he came home, and it was really bad. And in that moment, that night, I got between my dad and my mom, and I pushed my dad back, and I said, you will no longer hit her ever again. You're going to leave, and you're never going to come back, and I'm going to take care of them. And his dad bows up at him, and he says, uh, and his dad ends up leaving. And he said, from that day on, I took care of my mother and my sisters. (laughs) And Phil's like, that's your best day? I'd hate to see what your worst day was like. And Ed goes, same day. Same day. This is what God is doing of how he vindicates himself in the story of Job. Is that he takes something that was painful and he makes it precious because out of that pain, he gives himself. And we see the same thing with Job. We see the same thing with how the story is bookended, that you remember that his children, what was most precious to him, were destroyed and killed when a house fell upon them because of a great wind, a tornado, a whirlwind. that came and destroyed the house and crushed them. And then at the end of the story, you have God who actually shows up in a great wind, a tornado, a whirlwind. And the very thing that brought Job so much pain is the very same place where he will meet God. And when Job meets God, he's vindicated in the way that God will not give Job any answers as to why he suffered. He will just simply give him himself and display who he is to Job. And Job says, before I'd only heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you and I am comforted. That God has chosen to vindicate his value and his worth through human suffering 
is a hard saying. And I think some of you are wanting God to speak to you. You want God to come to you in a very profound way. Who doesn't? But you hear the fact that God vindicates himself through human suffering. And why is that? You know, it's hard to hear the story of man who lost everything. It's hard when you hear that God allowed all this suffering to happen to Job so that he might give what is most precious to Job, which is himself. And you hear that and you say, yeah, I want to meet God. But God, you have a really hard way of showing your value and your worth. And I think God would say, yeah, I know. But you're really hard to show it to. You're so distracted all the time. You're so busy. You think you have everything figured out. You're so busy that you can't stop and slow down and pursue me. I speak to you in your pain. I speak to you in your discomforts. But you just gloss it away with cheap answers and you just grit your teeth and keep going. You give me the bottom of the barrel of your time, your energy, your money, and your effort. And you think that knowing a few facts about me will sustain you. Well, if you have such right and wonderful doctrine about me, then why are you so anxious all the time? Why are you so lonely? Why do you live in fear? Why do you have a profound need to control every circumstance in your life? Why are you always so self-conscious? And the truth is, is that sometimes when God speaks to us in our pain, we settle for the Elihu answers. We think as we know a little bit of facts that we just gloss them over to keep ourselves from actually facing the pain, which is where God is speaking to us, so that we won't rely on simply the answers that he gives us, but we learn to rely upon him alone. And him and none other. So I have to ask this morning as we close, will this be another sermon series for you? One where you learn a few facts about God, but you walk away feeling as though God is just as distant as when we started and just as distant as he was last year and five years ago and ten years ago. God wants to vindicate not just his value and worth through Job's suffering, but through yours. God vindicates his worth and his value ultimately in human suffering in Jesus. That this idea of God entering into human history and identifying with those who suffer isn't just some idea, but that he has come to you personally. He has come to you. But often he, he speaks in the places that we don't want to go, and those are the places of pain, those are the places of confusion, and those are the places that you've ignored. And it's there that the whirlwind awaits for you. Are you willing to go? The deep end of the pool is easily described as the C.S. Lewis quote, which so many commentators used for this passage that God whispers in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. God is shouting to you. Are you willing to listen? If so, I'm glad, because so am I. I'm willing to sit with you in the trash heap. We want to be a place where we sit in the deep end and ask deeper questions, not just that learn some facts, but uses those to take us to God. We would be a church that depends upon him and him alone and seeks him in a, diff- in a deeper way. And that's why we open up the offer to pastoral counseling. Not because we have the answers, but that we can go seek the one who has the answers together because the deep end can be a really lonely place. And so, 
we invite you to come. Come to us. Maybe it's time to start talking about that pain and vexation that you've ignored all your life. And we'll hear what the whirlwind has to say to you. And it will most certainly be that God is most precious above all else. You willing to go? Let's pray. Jesus, we need you so desperately that we don't understand it. Sometimes you have to break our hearts before we will reach our hands out to you. I know that's true of myself and true of all of us, that we, we just have a way of keep on keeping on. We just keep going and grinding out an existence that wants to know you but doesn't. We settle for maybe facts about you as intimacy with you. I ask this morning that your spirit would stir the hearts in this room. I ask that you would make us uncomfortable. I ask that you would bring the discomfort that makes us begin to ask deeper questions than we've asked, that makes us unsettled and unsatisfied so that we might come to you for the deeper answers of our lives, that we can give glory to you not just simply as an idea because you're God, but we can give glory to you because you are the one who makes our pain and turns it into pleasure. You are the one that takes the suffering of this world and can make something sweet. We ultimately look to Jesus, where that is so true, that where there is there's great pain, there is great freedom. Remind us of who our Savior is. Remind us of the stories that you tell, even though it's hard, and help us to come and chase after you. We ask that you would do so and do so quickly. And everybody said, amen.